Welcome to Influential She, the podcast about accelerating the influence of women in the world. You will find us to be a fresh voice in an old conversation. And here we are, your amazing co-hosts, Deb Soholt and Mel Shop. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Influential She. We are just really thrilled to be able to have this conversation with another amazing woman today. I'm your co-host, Mel Shop, And I'm Deb Soholt. And, you know, we have really enjoyed developing these high-leverage practices that, based on our years of experience together, we just really feel, if you can grab hold to these 10 practices sooner in your life, that you're really able to accelerate your influence and that both of us could really see where collectively each of us probably spent 15 years kind of wandering around in the wilderness. And if we'd known these in our younger years, we could have moved forward in the world faster and just seriously had more fun. And one of our high leverage practices, which we talk about trying to calm and get to negotiated reconciliation with the committee on your head. And this is around doing and all these voices that tell you, well, maybe not. No, I need to wait. And no, I can't pursue that. Or here are all these reasons. And so at some point, you just have to get about the doing of things. Right, Mel? Yeah. And you know, it's funny when I think about this, we both did a lot of doing. We, we did a lot of stuff. A lot of doing. Uh, lots of it. And I think we as women tend to do a lot. But where this high leverage practice really focuses in a little bit differently is making sure that the doing is not only just productive, but it's leading to joy. And I think that's a really important piece of that because so many times we just wait for things to happen. I think every time, Deb, that you talk about that committee in your head, everybody shakes their head because they know exactly what that is. Because sometimes it's a matter of making the decision. Uh, and it's not always that, this is, you know, whether the decision is the right or wrong one. Once a decision is made, you can move forward. Otherwise, you're just paralyzed and you just are stuck doing a lot of stuff. Exactly. And just unfocused stuff. Now, I think there's sometimes doing has to just be about puttering and noodling because you're thinking. But at some point, a decision has to be made. And we have the most interesting guest today. We're just so excited that she's with us on our show because she has been about so much doing, but really in almost different decades and buckets of her life, which is what we're going to get into. And we are just thrilled today to have on our show, Cynthia Newberry Martin. Now she's just written this incredibly groovy book. It's called Title Flats, and it's about relationships and about separateness and togetherness in relationships, which I think is such a powerful thing about doing. But first, I just want to say welcome to the show, Cynthia. We're so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, I'm really excited to be a part of the conversation that the two of you have started. I've enjoyed listening to your other guests, and so I'm excited to be here. Well, thanks again for coming on board. And you have spoken, and you know it's on your website because you have been in conversation with a lot of people and been writing about this concept of called catching days, where you're trying to understand this lived experience and people doing and catching their days and capturing that in the written word. But woven throughout all of that is this idea of being separate and yet together. And I think that that's sometimes that's where people get kind of caught, is it thinking it has to be one or the other instead of both of them coexisting at the same time. So let's start there, Cynthia. 
how did this idea of separateness and togetherness in the doing come to you? Probably, I would say it was a matter of survival. Um, I grew up one of five. uh, So along with mom and dad, it was a house of seven. And uh, from, I don't know if it was in my genes before I was born or just grew out of that, uh, you know, initial family situation uh, that I wanted my own space and my own time. When I uh, went to college, I requested a single room. (laughs) And uh, it wasn't that I didn't like people. I just needed that space and time uh, of my own. And even after my children were born, you know, that's so intense when you have a new baby. But I would always start planning a trip by myself away somewhere. In those days, it was usually to Paris or somewhere in France. But uh, and I would go by myself and uh, friends would joke, like, who'd you talk to the waiters, you know, and Yes, I talked to the waiters. It was great. But I've always felt this absolute need for the time for time to myself. And it's when I started in with marriage, it only intensifies the need because it's one thing to have a room to yourself. It's another to live as a couple, one of person of a couple in a house. So I've just always tried to find that time and space. And um it went on uh, and became even more important after 31 years of kids at home. <laughs> you know, Cynthia, I'm thinking about this because I'm looking at the three of us and we're not super young. We come from a ge- generation of really traditional sorts of values about what it looks like to be in a marriage. Were there ever times that you felt like people didn't understand you or did they question the need for you to be separate and yet together? I'm really curious about that. All the time. Absolutely. People think I am crazy. Even close friends just don't understand. Luckily, my husband does understand. (laughs) Yeah, I try to explain it and they say, you're going by yourself. And I'd say, yes. And a lot of people do not enjoy being by themselves. But again, back to maybe growing up in the house of seven people, I like deciding what I want and taking a step toward it doing it. Uh, My mother used to say I was so glad when she turned 16 so she could get out there and do the things for herself instead of having me do them for. So yeah, people do think I'm weird. Absolutely. 100%. But that has never bothered me for one second. Because again, it feels like a need, you know, a survival. Uh, I don't know how I do it otherwise. The reason I asked that, I just find it really fascinating because within my career, it required that I would live separately from my husband. And it was almost 18 years. Um, But we came and lived in a very traditional type of community, um, on a farm. And I took, you know, at this point, my career when my son was older and I left, you know, home and would go back on some weekends. But it was not well acknowledged, accepted, nor was it understood that how could you almost like, how could you do this to your family? (laughs) There just was not this understanding. So, boy, I can get it. And yet I appreciated and enjoyed that time because I needed it to be able to focus not just on me, but really in the work I was doing. Absolutely. Uh, And that's the way I feel, that I need the time away. And, you know, it's um, it's not, quote, normal in a marriage to have this time away. It's 
you know, you think, oh, well, somebody's got to work somewhere else for a while. Okay, that's fine. But I set off uh, and uh, 10 years ago uh, because to, to create that space, to create the space where I could be uh, by myself for a, a week a month. And uh, I've been doing that since 2013. And uh, I wondered at the time whether, um, you know, whether... Uh, a marriage could stretch to encompass that sort of regular uh, time apart because it wasn't anything we were used to. Sure, I took a trip, you know, once a year by myself for a week, or I went to a writing workshop for a week. Um, those were specific instances and one-time things. But here, um, you know, after. Uh, after 31 years of children at home, and I was asking for regular, and I was creating the space for um, regular monthly time apart. And it was a conversation that went on for, you know, four years. It started when, <laughs> it started when my youngest son, um, and I have four kids, uh, when my youngest son started high school. I could see that light at the end of the tunnel and knew it was time to start talking about uh, making uh, the space, about having more time to myself. And I also, you know, I wanted to live, I wanted to change things up a bit. I'd been living in Columbus, Georgia, and I wanted to live closer to water, spend more of my time closer to water. But again, I didn't want to blow anything up. It wasn't... Uh, it wasn't that this wasn't working. It's just within my living, within my life, within my marriage, I just needed a little more time to my space and a different, I wanted to be looking at something different for a while. You know, Cynthia, what I love about this story and tell our listeners, first of all, where you go once a month to find water. <laughs> Well, it's so funny because when I uh, first started talking about this with my husband, um, I was thinking, oh, you know, the Florida panhandle, four hours away, throw some bags in a car. Uh, but over the time that um, Sam was in high school, uh, I fell in love with Provincetown on Cape Cod. And so instead of a short four-hour drive, I have a, if I'm lucky, uh, a seven-hour, three-plane ride trip. Uh, but I love it. I love it there. I love the air, the art, the space, the community. It's wonderful. So I think what's so interesting and what I love and is inspiring about the doing, Cynthia, is that to both what you and Mel were talking about, it's just there's this assumption that you get married and then there's this attached at the hip, symbiotic, we love everything together, we're going to be in this same space, and that's how the doing has to play out. And I just, I, I love how you didn't have to blow anything up, but you had to get into conversation about, I'm going to do things differently for my life, for the part that I need separate from you, but I don't want to lose you either. And so I think that we always see this as a, you know, it's this or it's that, and it can't be something in between. So talk a little bit more about, because then you ended up you know, really doing this in your work about talking about separateness and togetherness, which I think is so fascinating. But you said, okay, I've got this, you know, freshman in high school. I can see that, you know, in four years from now, there's going to have to be some seismic shift in how all this is going on. 
So how did you, I mean, I think our listeners would be fascinated by how you started to approach that I'm going to do my life a little differently. And I have this piece I'm carving out just for me, because I don't think a lot of women see that that's even possible. Sure. Well, um, you know, there's the first conversation where you just kind of <laughs> throw out the ideas, you know, uh, it's a nice night outside. You sit outside with a glass of wine and you talk about how the last one is starting high school. And, uh, and I say, you know, it's been great here. <laughs> um, uh, but I think I would like to, um, I think I'd like to spend some more time near water. And so you just kind of bat it back and forth. We just talked in general terms. And then the next conversation, you know, you wait a while, you bring it up again. And uh, I wanted to make sure he didn't forget about it. And then um, and then I started saying, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe a week a month. You know, how does that sound? What would you, you know, and, well, that sounds like a lot of time away. If <laughs> And I said, but just one week a month, that's, that's what I want to start with. And then, you know, then it became, uh, when I started honing in on Provincetown, um, it was like, oh man, oh, I thought you meant, you know, and I thought, well, I'm falling, I love it up there. So I want to try that. Just want to try that. Just take a little step up there. We'll see how it goes. And then and then I start planning. And for that first year, and really for a number of years, um, way ahead of time, uh, October, November, I start looking at the calendar. And uh, this, if you want practicalities, I mean, I sent, I looked at my calendar and I picked out uh, 12 weeks and I sent him an email and I said, you know, how do these weeks look for you? Uh, any changes <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so we, it was, a, it was a joint process and, and he was just as, and I, I didn't know if it was going to work. I mean, even when I took off on that plane the first time, I didn't know if it was going to work. Uh, could, could we do this to people who wanted different things? I mean, he wanted me to be here all the time and, you know, I wanted to be away a good bit of the time. And so uh, just starting with that one week a month, clearing the dates ahead of time, having that on the calendar, you know, that kind of thing. I'd make my plane reservations step by step. That's how it goes. Little by little, chipping away. <laughs> yeah. And pushing, you know, pushing out, pushing out, finding a little spot that's, you know, can move a little bit and, and pushing right there. Um, I've always just, <laughs> I'm always, I've always gone after what I wanted. Um, just, uh, I, you, you talked about the committee in your head. I don't think I have one of those in my head. <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky. <laughs> I just kind of go after it and, uh, it doesn't always work, but you know, a lot of times, um, a lot of times it does. So when you talk about all those things, obviously you made a lot of, um, are capable of making a lot of decisions, but looking back at all the things that you've done, I mean, it's been pretty fascinating. So might, people might think, oh, you've been a writer all your life and you have this really, what I would like to call an eclectic career. So I know <laughs> that you did some teaching for a while in North Carolina, but you also practiced law. Tell us a little bit about that journey because it's not exactly, 
a very straight line, <laughs> right, Cynthia? No, no straight line at all. Um, in fact, uh, when I started writing, I was looking back and thinking, okay, let's see, French, uh, law practice, uh, writing, what, I mean, what do these have in common? And the best I could do was language. Um, but yeah, so I, um, I fell in love with French early on, and uh, it was all French all the time for 20 years. I was great at it. I loved it. Um, I went to France. I went to Quebec City. I, I just any t- cl- I loved French magazines, everything. And uh, but you know, there comes a time when you are a junior in college and you wonder what you're going to be doing the rest of your life. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe the law. I've, my father always told me I like to argue, and so that was the that was the place to go. And so I had that in the back of my head. And then I graduated early in three years because I managed to get credit for everything I did all summer long. And uh, and so my first job was um, was as I was actually the first female assistant to the president of Davidson College, and that one of my um, responsibilities was working with the trustees. And one of the trustees was Dean Rusk. And so um, he talked to me a lot about the benefits of going to law school uh, and, and having a legal career. And so that just encouraged me and I started to apply and I, and uh, I got in and uh, I went to the University of Georgia and um, and then practiced law in Atlanta for two years. And I was in the field of trust and estates is where I specialized. And, uh, and that was all great. And then when I got married again and moved to Columbus, um, Georgia, I, uh, I still practiced. But when I was pregnant with number three, that was pretty much all I could take. I got sick, got the flu, and then, you know, and, and so something had to go and it wasn't going to be the baby. So um, <laughs> I, 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 I stopped practicing. I never had the passion for uh, law like I did for French. I mean, I was good at both things. They were easy, but I never felt the same way about practicing law that I did about French. So I was at home with the kids and I'd always been a reader. And so during that time, reading became a lifeline. I really, I, I just read and read and read. I discovered all these new authors uh, and that connected me to the bigger world. That was the way I stayed in conversation with the world around me. It was through the books, novels. And so when when Sam, who we've talked about, the youngest, uh, got to be about two, I started having a minute here and a minute there of free time. And so I started thinking, well, so, so what do you want to do next? I mean, do you want to go back to practicing law? Do you want to teach French? Uh, and I thought about it and I thought, no, I want to do what they do. And so at the age of almost 40, uh, that was the first time I had uh, thought about being a writer. And, uh, and so I just, the first words I put on paper became part of my first novel, although I had absolutely zero idea what I was doing. 
So I think what's so fascinating, Cynthia, is, you know, we had a pre-conversation just about you and where you come from, and you talked about being so methodical and so organized. And so I think the law kind of feeds to that because there's very structured lanes, there's rules around that, there is statute that guides the law. And and yet, how you were really starting to think you must have been about relationships in this separateness togetherness during that time, because if you're working in estate planning and trust work, you're seeing how these relationships with money and how people are designing and pulling together. So how did that kind of, and then you're reading these books, you're saying, okay, I want to be a writer. Talk about how that coalesced into you doing something about it. Sure. I, um, <laughs> it's hard to go back so many years about that, but, um, I have always just been, uh, very determined. And so I, you know, started, uh, looking for writers, looking for workshops, um, uh, the, the type of writing that I had been doing when I was drafting wills and trusts, um, I thought, sure, I can do this. No problem. Being a writer is going to be just as easy as, uh, learning to speak French and, uh, being an attorney. Uh, but I was forgetting one thing and that's, it's two very different types of writing. And, while the all those ideas, I'll tell you what. One thing, <laughs> one thing you mentioned the money and the and the separateness and the. <laughs> my first novel um, was I learned how to write, and it was about a woman. It was about all these women and the different choices they make for their lives. But the second novel, I made a mistake. I made a big mistake that I can see how easily I did it, but it's exactly what you were talking about. I thought every woman should have their own money. And that, that was, I, and it started with this image of a lipstick, you know, that, that I saw the end of the book first. It was, uh, this woman has to ask her husband for money for a lipstick because, you know, she's used up all the money that she's had for the week or the month or whatever. And he says, what? No, she asked him for $20 and he says, what for? And that was it. That was the straw that broke that back and, uh, she leaves. But, uh, that was, you can't, it's, I want, I had a mission to write when I set out to write that book, I wrote it with a mission with a goal. I wanted to make a point. And I learned that that is not how the best novels are written. Um, the, you know, write an essay. If, if, if I want to make that point, I can write an essay. But fiction is a different beast entirely. It's different from a will. It's different from a trust. It's creative. And I, all this time that I'd been, you know, succeeding at things, I had never used my creative brain. It was getting smaller and smaller and smaller over here while my, you know, my left brain was really just taking over every operation. And I think that's why it took me so long to learn how to write a novel and to have some success because I was having to build up my creative right brain. And, uh, 
you know, let go a little more and be loose and uh, think associatively and uh, just let the story go. And so while, so while, you know, working as an attorney in trust and estates added something to, you know, my being, uh, my moving on to writing, it was, it was really more that I had to learn to switch gears and, uh, and, and think associatively and creatively. You know, what I love about that is you're talking about some of the doing you had to do, you had to engage in for yourself. So it's like, all right, if this is intriguing to me, then there are some things I have to start doing to open up this new side of me that maybe got buried or lost, or it was a road I didn't go down, but I still can feel it existing within me. And so I think to women, sometimes that doing is this longing that's in your heart somewhere that you just feel this stirring that keeps recurring. And yet you're like, well, no, I, you know, I've, I'm doing all these logical things. I've got all these responsibilities. And yet that stirring may be a step and a decision to put a stake in the ground for yourself. Absolutely. 100%. Yes. And, you know, if, if I, I had to, because um, it, it's just this overwhelming feeling um, uh, of, of have to. I have to do something. And that's like when I, I get a huge task like this, learning how to write, huge task, huge. So I just have to break it down. What's one thing I can do today? Yeah. You know, chip away at it. One thing I can do today. Well, I can look and see if there's a writing workshop I can go to this summer. Uh, and um, so I looked, you know, who were the writers I was reading? Well, I want to take, I want to learn how to write from them because that's the kind of writing I want to do. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, um, it's something, um, it's taking that first step. And then, you know, then the next step becomes more obvious. And then the next one, it doesn't have to happen all at once, but I cannot just sit here and stew. I have to, I have to take a step. It's so funny you'd say that. I think if my daughter was sitting right here, because she can get, you know, we all get overwhelmed. You need your mother to give you advice. My advice, she says it goes to my head all the time. It's just chunk it out. So by meaning like just take a chunk of it, take a bite, do the next bite. But Cynthia, one of the things I read about you that just I absolutely loved that you had put together, I think it was in a blog, you did these 365 things about me. <laughs> and it is so telling about the person you are. I, I mean, I just, I loved it. I kept thinking, geez, I should do that. I don't know if I could find that. But there's a couple of things that just stuck out. You know, you said that your jobs I held don't say a thing about me, which I think is really, really interesting. And Deb and I have talked about this, that we've had trouble in letting our jobs define who we are rather than letting who we are define who we are, if that makes any sense. I love that. I That really that really stuck out to me. And, and you, you know, throughout this entire thing, you talk about how much you need order, and yet sometimes you think you need more chaos. And I just would encourage our listeners to go and look this up. It's 365 true things about me because I think it'd be a good daily practice for all of us. But I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that and how you got the impetus for that uh, because it really tells a lot about, you know, things that are really candid and from the heart. Well, that was a very specific moment. Um, I had been writing for a long time 
And you know how you see people every, we're uh, coming up on the holiday season. You know how you see people every holiday at a cocktail party and they say, so how's your writing? So when can I read what you wrote? And that is really nice. It's from the heart. Those questions are from the heart. And they're, they're um, really nice that these people have asked them because they're showing an interest in what I'm doing. So I totally appreciate it. Um, however, when you are writing and it's year after year and you don't have a book published and no, they can't read your writing. Well, back in 2014, I think it was Christmas, I was at such a cocktail party and I was standing with two other, three other people and I was asked that question and not one word came out of my mouth. I couldn't, I couldn't answer that question again. And it really, uh, it was, it was, that had never happened to me before. Uh, you know, I can laugh it off. I can make a joke. I can answer truthfully, whatever, but to have absolutely no voice Hmm. on that question. And that really, really made an impact on me. And I thought I am losing myself in this process. I mean, I'm not giving up. But it has been a lot of years, and I'm still working hard. I still haven't reached my goal, and I've got to do something about this before I become absolutely nothing, before I um, shrink to nothing. And so I thought about it, and I thought, I need something to build myself back up. I need something to remind me of who I am and what I am. And um, so I thought that I would. I started this practice. Um, it may have been, maybe it was January 1st, 2015, but it was 365 true things about me. And every day I would write one thing about me. And uh, it was an amazing practice. Uh, and by the end of it, I not only knew that I was, uh, you know, uh, more than a writer. It was like, you know, I was looking at all these different things and felt I was back. I was back. It was great. I felt solid. I felt grounded. I felt like, okay, I'm ready. I can go back in and, and keep doing this. Um, it's almost like a dialogue when I was, when I was reading through them, it's this dialogue you're having with yourself because sometimes you'll (laughs) say one thing and then you respond to yourself in another way. I just think it's a powerful (laughs) thing for us all to think about. Because we don't have to reflect on us. We're always, you know, I think typically we're always thinking about everyone else and how we're going to meet their needs um, in so many ways. But this is really intuitive. So I just, I appreciate it. I just want to encourage our listeners to think about that as well. Well, I appreciate it. Um, a, um, a friend, um, uh, I got the idea from a friend who was um, doing something similar, not the same thing on Facebook. And I thought, well, Facebook, whatever. But then I thought, oh, you know, catching days. I have the perfect place to do this. And it felt much more personal and much more my space. Uh, So that worked really, that worked really well. You know, Cynthia, I think what's so interesting, and this is the introspective thing for women in all the busyness of the doing, that when you found yourself voiceless, you're like, okay, I'm losing myself. I'm in this process, becoming a writer, but I'm drifting off that some of what I'm learning and needing 
is keeping me from clarity on other areas of me. And I just, it's so fascinating how you then got busy doing for yourself. I mean, in this conversation, you have talked about that quite a bit about, (laughs) you know, this, this separate togetherness is, there is a certain amount of doing for me. And that's what I love about knowing you and being in conversation with you, because I think we really need to encourage other women to see this kind of doing on behalf of yourself as necessary, as integral, as you as a person have, you know, if you want to accelerate influence and you want to be influential, the only way to do that is to be authentically you. And how many times the doing takes us completely away from being authentically ourselves. 100%. All the time. <laughs> all the time. And so you just said, all right, I'm drifting. I, I'm not even sure who I am anymore in some of this. And so I just, um, I love that Mel brought that up about the work that you've done in catching days. And talk a little bit more just about catching days and how you could see these patterns of people and writers and how that became part of your doing. Sure. Um, so uh, back in like 2007, 2008, that's when um, blogs were becoming all the thing. And uh, I made a rule for myself. I mean, nobody told me this. I made it up um, that I had to have a book, you know, to quote, be for it to be okay for me to start a blog. I had to have some reason. I couldn't just like be a person out there. I don't know where I got that notion. Um so, but one day I remember it complete clearly, clearly. Uh, I was sitting at lunch and um, somebody came up and said, hey, have you seen so-and-so's blog? And I said, does she have a book? And they said, no. And I, that was it. That was like, that was it. And um, uh, you've mentioned this, but normally I do do things so methodically. Like I start with my, you know, my 20 favorite quotes and I'll hone it down to my one. But no, I went home that day. It was September of 20, 2008. And I thought I'm having a blog and it's going to be up and running in the next 24 hours. And I researched how to start a blog, went to WordPress. I thought, okay, it looked like I needed a name a header photo and, you know, maybe a quote to be the, like the inspiration. So I was sitting here right where I am right now. And I looked over and I saw the Annie Dillard quote, how we spend our days is of course, how we spend our lives. So I thought, that's it. That's my inspiration. And then I thought, catching days. It just came to me. And so I plopped it up there, plopped the quote up there. And uh, I had been in Provincetown recently. So when I went to look at photos, what photos I had that I could use for a header, there were these pictures of this, these row of cottages. They're iconic. They're, they're just before you get to Provincetown in Truro. And uh, in Provincetown, there are paintings and photographs of them everywhere. And so I had taken, I had been up there and taken my own photo. And so I just grabbed that and put it up there and there it was. And I was in business. And uh, at the beginning, every post, uh, I posted every day for a certain number of days. And every post I made had to have something to do with a book. And uh, after a few months went on, I started thinking about, people always were having guest uh, bloggers on. And so I wanted to add another voice to, um, to what I was doing. 
And so I started thinking about how I could do that because I just didn't want to say, hey, come on, write whatever you want. And, um, and so I remembered back when I lived in France for a year, uh, how excited I was every week to get the French L magazine because they had started a column that was called A Day in the Life of a Woman. And I was, I, I turned right to that page every time. First thing I did was uh, read that. It, was, it was, wasn't terribly long. It was like half a page. And, but it was women from everywhere. I mean, you know, uh, heads of corporations, housekeepers, dog walkers. It was just had to be a woman. And she wrote about her day. And when I thought of that, I thought, oh, that's perfect. Um, I will ask a writer a month um, to uh, write how he or she spends her days. And so it became that. So the first one, um, Pam Houston, the writer Pam Houston, wrote the very first one in August of 2009. So I now have over a decade of essays by writers on their lives. And um, it's, it's, it's really fun. It's, I've, I've gotten to know a lot of writers this way. I've been able to highlight, you know, to give back. It's a way to give back and add to the community. So it's been amazing. I love that, Cynthia, because I think um, that's what we're finding too in our conversations. Just, you know, the voices of women and hearing their story and um, who they are, their vulnerabilities has been a really powerful, um, hopefully for the rest of the world, but I know for us personally, and you're a piece of that. So we appreciate that. Um, you know, we always like to do is, Cynthia, can you give us, you know, if you were going to talk to your 16-year-old self, what advice would you <laughs> give her today? Just talk to her now that you're all wise, you've got all this wisdom. What are you oh, going to tell 16-year-old Cynthia that you didn't know back then? Um. Well, I think I would have said, um, don't follow so many rules, uh, look past your parents, uh, be wild and crazy and, uh, go for it. <laughs> wow. I love that. Whoa. I, I think I'll give that advice to my granddaughter a little bit later. <laughs> well, that's just fabulous advice. You know, any any time of life, because when you live for a long time and you've done so many things, then somehow there's this preconception, then that's the end of the work, or that's just who you are, or that road that you took completely defines, and there is no new avenue of doing left for you. And I think your story and just talking about, it doesn't have to be this or that, it can be a compromise in the middle where, yes, maybe I can do it in a way where I can have all things that feed me and nurture yes. me. And, uh, you know, why should a, deci a decision we made 30 years ago be the end? I mean, why? So let's get out there and change what it means. <laughs> well, it has just been delightful to be in conversation with you, Cynthia. And I know that you're going to really inspire people and you're final question to the women who are listening is the perfect one. Like we like to leave our guests that are listening in with a question and you've just said it. Like why? <laughs> Those decisions that we make don't have to be 
the doing doesn't have to be the end of the story. It's not like a, this is the only path I can take. It's really being open to the possibilities of new ways of doing things. And as you've both talked about, chip away, chunk away, do one thing today, but just start moving in that right direction. So to everybody listening, Cynthia's really given a lot of inspiration that there's many, many ways to do things. And the important way is the one that resonates with your heart, that is connected to the deepest stirrings of you. And as we like to say, to you know, really live a juicy life. Because at the end of the day, we should be all used up and being all used up in a way that makes your heart sing. So thank you so much for being on the show, Cynthia. It was wonderful. Thank you for having me. And we just really appreciate everyone that listens into Influential She, shares it with their friends, helps us to expand this conversation in the world. Thanks again for joining in today. We hope you'll do it again. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed our podcast, we'd be so jazzed if you rate us on whatever app you use to find us. And hey, be sure to tell all your friends about Influential She. And please visit us at InfluentialShe.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. And you know what? If you come up with a new one, please let us know. In the meantime, remember, stay influential. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network, Better Today, Better Tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.